The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. This week we're in Hong Kong and New York. Later, we'll be looking at the world between empires, the new show at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, looking at the moment when the Middle East was the meeting point for the Parthian and Roman empires. But first this week, it's the seventh edition of Art Basel Hong Kong, the annual art fair. This year, it features more than 290 galleries from across the world, half of them Asian galleries or international galleries with Asian outposts. In a moment, we'll be discussing an exhibition in Hong Kong of the Taiwanese-born artist Richard Lin. But first, Gareth Harris, the art newspaper's senior contributing editor, spoke to Mark Spiegler, global director of Art Basel, at the fair. Hello, we're here at the 7th edition of Art Basel Hong Kong. Um, I'm speaking to Mark Spiegler, Global Director. How are you, Mark? I'm very well. We had a fantastic opening day yesterday. Good. Um, Can you throw some insights on the fair this year and and throw some light on the different sectors, uh, why it's an essential art hub, that kind of thing? Um, I first came to Hong Kong 10 years ago when this fair was Art HK um, and when MCH, our parent company, wasn't involved. And within a year, we had bought into the show in 2011. And then in 2013, we launched it as Art Basel Hong Kong. In the 20 years I've been involved in the art world, first as a journalist and then as a fair director, I've never experienced a fair having this kind of sustained heat. You know, I mean, there are fairs that launch and then people are interested for a year or two, but the show in Hong Kong has, has continuously developed and advanced. Um, you know, I think this year is, is a good example. Uh, you know, we have this year our, our freshman class, so to speak, of galleries from the West is amazing. You know, you have people, legendary galleries like Paula Cooper, Matthew Marks, Loring Augustine, Andrew Kreps, Max Hetzler, Barbel Gresslin, Regan Project, Richard Nagy. You know, Richard Nagy's Sheila one-man booth is, isn't a booth we'd be happy to have, any fair would be happy to have. So to have it come to Asia, which mm-hmm. is almost counterintuitive, um, is quite a remarkable thing. Uh, At the same time, I think around the show, the city has grown. And I think at Art Basel, what's really important for us is not just what happens in the halls, what happens in the city. In the same way that in Miami, the private collections were such an important part of the development of the Art Basel Miami Beach show. In Basel, the public collections are such an important part of the, the week. In Hong Kong, the galleries and the expansion of the galleries and the opening of new galleries has brought a continued life and rejuvenation to the show. Um, So whether it's, you know, empty gallery bringing a Chinese artist back who had sort of disappeared off the map for 20 years after having his last show at Castelli, Tushan Su. Is that Tushan Su, yeah. Yes, exactly. Or, uh, you know, whether it's Levi Gorvi opening, you know, directly across to the Miranda Oriental, um, amid an avalanche of bouquets from local friends, the galleries have played a, a very important part. And it, and it makes sense, because Hong Kong is a commercial hub in the way that Miami and Basel are not. And I think this is one of the great things, the, the extent to which each fair has its own identity. We run the numbers on these things constantly. One of the most remarkable numbers that I saw, um, which surprised me, actually, was that of the 500 galleries that we have across our three shows, there are less than 100 that do all three shows. 
So it's not that you have a kind of traveling circus. You really have a platform which is reflective of the region, rooted in the region, in every place. That's really interesting. There are less than 100 that do all three shows. There are 96, according to the numbers that I just saw. Interesting. So you, you obviously want a good mix of local and international mm -hmm. in that sense. Yeah. So that was one of my other questions. Do you actively yeah. aim to include Chinese galleries, Hong Kong dealers? Well, we don't think of Hong Kong as a Chinese show. We think of it as an Asian show. Um, and way back when, when we launched Art Basel Hong Kong, we, st we started to analyze what the mix of galleries was in Basel and in Miami Beach. And we found that organically, the Miami Beach show was 50% galleries from the Americas, meaning North, Central, and South America. Um, in Basel, it was 50% European galleries. And we said, this is an important factor. This is something which ties the show to its region and also realistically to the region's collectors. Because the reality is that although people will travel from far away to see it come to a fair, the people who will come every year, the people we can hope to really catalyze and to have them start coming and then come regularly are the people who are within that region. And Asia, of course, is an immense region. So we've set out to have a show which is 50% galleries who are active in Asia. And that's a really important factor for us. So do they have exhibition spaces here? Is you have to have an exhibition space in Asia. And although, of course, now galleries like Hauser and Veerd, Zwerner, Levy Gorvey, White Cube count within that, the reality is you still have more than 100 galleries which are Asian in the most complete sense of the word. You know, they started here, the core of their artists are from here, the core of their collectors are from here. I think the latest um, Art Basel and UBS Global Art Market Report was fascinating. There were quite a few findings in there that were surprising. Mm -hmm. um, one of them was that finding new buyers remains the biggest challenge cited by dealers in 2018. Are there new dealers here? or I mean, do you, do you, do you think that's a hurdle? You still need to... Absolutely. Surmount? I mean, I think, I think um, it, that wasn't particularly surprising to me because I, you know, I'm very conscious of the fact, I remember of, of the fact that there is a constant flux within the collectors who drive a gallery's program and its finances, quite frankly. Um, I remember speaking to a major German dealer who told me that 10 collectors were the core of his sales, you know, and they were, but that those 10 collectors were almost entirely different than the 10 collectors who'd been the core of his sales 10 years previously. So, you know, I think the reality is there are people who, who gain interest, who lose interest, there are people whose finances change, there are people whose marital situations change, there are people who build bigger houses or decide not to have a house at all. You know, I think when a gallery measures a fair's value, they think on the one hand about sales, but you know, when I talk to you and they say, listen, we did well, but we sold to people we were sold to anyway. It's very different than this is amazing, we sold our entire booth to people we'd never met before mm -hmm. and who we'd always hoped to meet or who we didn't know existed, but now we're very happy to know they exist. So you know, I think especially the Hong Kong show is one where people come to meet new collectors. And interestingly, and this is something that was surprising to me in the development of this show. We thought of this show as being a bridge between East and West. What we didn't realize was how disconnected many of the scenes in Asia are from each other. For instance, the, the Japanese and Korean show scenes are quite close to each other, but almost entirely disconnected from the Chinese scene or from the Southeast Asian scene. And this show has served to build bridges between those scenes.
So it's connecting countries in the region? Very much, very much so. It's interesting as well, I think you mentioned in the press briefing that um, about China's sort of share of the global art market. Mm -hmm. I think it dropped last year, according to the report, to about 19%. Mm -hmm. I suppose it's, that's also boosted by the shares from other Asian countries, but that doesn't concern you? I mean, China's obviously still a major force. China is still a major force. Asia is a major force. You know, I also think we have to keep in mind that this, is, this reflects sales within the country, but that, for instance, buyers from Hong Kong, from Singapore, from Tokyo, from mainland China, have been ever more active publicly, we know, because the auction houses tell us, but also privately, we know, because they're coming to Basel, they're coming to other places. So, you know, I have no doubt that the Asian scene will continue to expand. You, I thought you were really quite candid at that press briefing, because you said, I think that the picture for some galleries is not rosy, it can be a struggle for many, especially those not working with the market's current stars. I thought that was quite honest. So do you still believe business is challenging for the smaller to mid-sized galleries? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think it would be delusional to pretend otherwise. Um, I think it is a very tough moment. You know, we see galleries struggling. We see galleries closing. I mean, this is one of the reasons why we introduced the sliding scale for, for pricing, you know, which is not present in Hong Kong yet, but will be next year, but which is present in, will be present in Basel this June and then in Miami in December. And, and the goal of that was to reflect the fact that four galleries who are operating without a roster of market stars driving their sales, it is a difficult, it is a difficult road to hoe. And I think we feel like in a lot of ways the fares are kind of counterbalanced to that. You know, we feel like, at the risk of sounding utopian, the, f the fair is a place where great collectors are brought by us, but also by galleries. If people come to support a gallery or several galleries they work with, and of course they go to visit those people first. But then, and our statistics prove this, they tend to spend two full days at the fair. And in the process of that, they discover galleries they'd never met before. You know, I remember uh, Marty Margulies telling me about discovering Gallery Christian Stein, which is a fantastic gallery from Milan, it's working with Arte Povera at the highest level. And for whatever reason, Marty hadn't met them before. And he met them, and they had a very active relationship. Many of, of the artists that Christian Stein Gallery works with uh, are present in his collection now. And I think this is the kind of thing that, that doesn't necessarily happen otherwise. But you know, if you take thousands of the best collectors and curators and museum directors in the world and you put them in a hall with 240 to 280 of the best galleries in the world who've really been pushed by our selection committees, by us, by themselves, by their competitors to put their best foot forward, you get this kind of uh, support and patronage and new networking. So the sliding scale fee starts in June in Basel. Is Indeed, that yes. Okay, that's a big step, isn't it? In a it is a big step, um, but it, you know, we we did a lot of work around it. We we worked on it. Um, in fact, looking back, I remember sitting here a year ago and debating whether we should introduce it for Hong Kong and deciding that we hadn't quite got it right yet and we wanted to work on it some more which meant that we could only introduce it in August for the Art Basel applications for this year's show. We worked on it for a long time. We discussed it with our committees. We ran lots of models. You know, we talked about what's fair, what's, what's too much of an imposition. You know, and I remember 
speaking with a major gallerist, and we wanted to be sure that there was support for this, not just within our community, but also within at least some of the galleries who would be most affected, the people who have the largest booths. And I remember talking to a gallerist and saying, listen, this is going to cost you less than 10000 more for your booth, mm-hmm. but your younger, less established colleagues will pay less. The people coming into the sector, into the gallery sector for the first time, will pay 20% less. Those in the second year will pay 10% less. We'll be able to reduce the price of the feature sector where people have to do specific projects, which are not as easy to sell as a full booth with all your art, where you can play with all your artists. I said, this is going to cost you less than $10,000. What did you pay for Basel last year? 250 total? He said, no, I paid 350. So it's a drop in the ocean. And I think, I think to their credit, all the gallerists with whom I spoke about this supported the notion because all of them understand that this is a market which is consolidating, but that in the long run, the young artists and the rediscoveries of artists have to come from these smaller players, you know, who don't have such large financial engines to feed, who don't need every show to sell quite so well. And I think, you know, I think it's, it's um, again, at the risk of sounding utopian, I, I don't think there are a lot of industries where people will actively take on costs to support their competitors. It's interesting. I mean, you, you, you're, you're talking about the dynamic of the gallery system, aren't you? There's I am. larger dealers who dominate. Can, you know, do they squeeze out those smaller players? And, and you're trying to change that, obviously. Well, <laughs> I don't, extent. I mean, I, th- I think, you know, let's be realistic. We cannot change the overall economics of the world. I think one of the things that was, that was fantastic about this and, and unexpected about the sliding, the announcement of the sliding scale was that it, it turned out that either other fairs were working on similar things, which they then announced, or had already put those in place. And, the, you know, the, the reality is that I think when you reduce the price of participation for a gallery by several thousand francs or more at one fair, it has a more symbolic impact. Although I will say that the, the galleries who, for whom this was, it's still just a symbolic impact, really felt like people were noticing, like we were paying attention, like we weren't taking for granted that a gallery whose, pra- whose paintings top out at, at $20,000 could pay as much per square meter as Gagosian can. You know? so, so, but but I, think, I think what was interesting is this kind of ripple effect. You know? Because when it's at all three fairs, of our fairs, and when it's also being undertaken by other fairs, like FIAC and like Freeze, at least Freeze LA, um, you have an actual cumulative effect. Because the reality is, if a gallery is doing five or six fairs, and they save 15000 20000 on all those various booth fees, it actually adds up to several months, several months' rent or several months' salary or another, sh- another biennial participation they can support. It's interesting, though. I think another fascinating finding in that report uh, was about the number of fairs dealers are now participating in. I mm-hmm. think it was four fairs in 2018, down from five fairs reported in the surveys of 2016 and 2017. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted you know, some sort of final comments about the future of fairs. Are they yeah. still at the top of the food chain? Um, how, can, how do you see them developing? How do you see your role developing? Well, I mean, I, I can't s- speak for fairs on the whole. But, I mean, I will say I wasn't particularly surprised by that in the sense that I had found in the last few years that I had had more conversations with gallerists who said, you know, we started to run the numbers on the shows and now we're wondering about the cost and whether it all adds up. And, and then I had, I had more conversations in the space of, let's say, 18 months than I'd had in the first 10 years at Art Basel. And so that was, it, it's clear that people 
on the one hand, are questioning whether they should do specific fares. But on the other hand, the reality is that so far, nothing else has emerged which replaces the absent fo foot traffic that you have, even in places like New York and Mayfair, but certainly in places, you know, like the East End or the Marais or, you know, Shanghai or Hong Kong. You know, the reality is that, that the art market hasn't digitized, you know, and it hasn't That's gone amazing. virtual. Um, and it's still a business in which people want to buy work by artists that they know. In bricks and mortar. That, they w that they've seen and very importantly also buying art is an act of trust and selling art is an act of trust when you sell a young artist who has a hot market to someone you want to know who they are you know and we're still at some level in this kind of primordial state where it's much easier to trust someone whose body language you've seen and whose eyes you've looked into yeah. than it is to trust someone who's whatsapping you and saying hey how much is it you know, and I think, I think once that trust has been established, a lot can be done digitally. But the fairs are still a place where works are seen, works are felt, you know, not quite in a haptic way, because you generally don't touch the work, but that you, you kind of sense how you react to a work when it's in front of you and whether this is something which will bring inspiration to your life. But that's really interesting. We've not had that Uber Amazon moment, have we? Yet? We haven't. You, you've said that. I find and that interesting. I, I mean, and I say this as a technophile. I mean, we've, yeah. we've really embraced technology since I started at our Basel. There's a difference between Uber, Net-a-Porter, Airbnb, which is that artworks are both expensive and unique and also don't have a real utility value, right? You can't you know, you, you go to Airbnb because it's cheaper than a hotel. You know, you take an Uber because it's cheaper than a taxi and certainly faster than a taxi, you know. But you don't really care so much whether you're in this apartment or that apartment as long as it's okay, or this car or that car as long as it's okay. But an artwork is a singular object. And I think, and, and um, an artist is a singular person. And I think artworks are not as easily commodified and therefore the mar market is not as easily digitized, which doesn't mean that things like Instagram, email, JPEGs, PDFs don't play an integral role in the business as it stands. But it's only once the Rubicon of personal trust has been crossed. Final question. You've been here, have you been at Art Basel 10 years now? And we're coming into the 11th year. Are you looking beyond? What comes next? Art Basel has a lot of room to grow, but not within the fairs. I think, I think you know, we feel like three fairs is asking a lot already of the galleries and the artists. We've done things in the past, like the crowdfunding initiative with Kickstarter, where we were supporting uh, nonprofits, which you wrote about. Thank you very much for the FT. I did. You know, um, extensively. Uh, we've done things like our Basel cities in Buenos Aires. We're looking at other projects. We'd love to do something digitally, which reinforces what the galleries do more than we do already. You know, from a personal perspective, I have an amazing team. I have a job I love. I have a mission. So you're sticking around for now. I'm sticking around. <laughs> okay. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you. Thanks. Art Basel Hong Kong continues until the 31st of March, and you can read all the latest news from Hong Kong online at theartnewspaper.com.
Now, if the art newspaper podcast had existed in the mid-1960s and I began to talk about the artist Richard Lin, there might have been a decent chance you would have known who I was talking about. Lin was born in Taiwan in 1933 and studied architecture and fine arts in London. In 1958, his first year after graduating, he had a solo show at the Institute of Contemporary Arts, the ICA, in London. And by 1964, he was showing in Documenta, the prestigious exhibition in Kassel, Germany. He was also widely collected by museums and shown with the Blue Chip Gallery Marlborough, which represented Francis Bacon, among many other leading artists. But then, for various reasons, his fame diminished. But his star's now on the rise again, eight years after his death. To coincide with Art Basel Hong Kong, Bonhams is presenting a retrospective of 30 works by Lin made between the 1950s and the 1970s, including one from that documentary exhibition. Rafe Taylor, the global head of post-war and contemporary art at Bonhams, joins me now to talk about Lin. Ray, following on from a show in London last year, you're now presenting Richard Lin in Hong Kong. It's important that he's represented in both Europe and Asia, isn't it? Because he's very much an artist that straddles those two continents. Yeah, I mean, he is probably unique in that sense. He is uh, born and raised in Taiwan from an aristocratic family, as it were. But then he moved over to finish his schooling in London, well, in, in, in the UK, and then... By 1965, he had taken on British citizenship. So he was a dual national, and his art really reflects that. You've got the minimalism that was being explored in Europe during that period, the mid-century. Um, but also there is always this kind of uh, Chinese-Taiwanese inflection in there. And also he was raised in a Japanese school as well. So he is a real melting pot of influences. Was he taught painting before he came to Europe, or or calligraphy, or any of the traditional art? Well, there's certainly that influence in his work. And you can see a very brief period between sort of 1958, when he becomes a professional artist, when he, and then when he changes to minimalism in 1960-61. So it's a very short period of transition. And his work there has got that kind of loose brush stroke. It reminds you a bit of someone like Zhao Wuji. Um, and so there is certainly that influence. But um, he actually was intended to become an engineer, you know, so all the Taiwanese nobility would send their children over to the West, train them in all of the engineering arts or architecture. And so actually he's a trained architect. And when he left uh, university, went to the uh, Westminster Polytechnic, um, he, his, his drawing was incredibly precise. Beautiful, beautiful drawings. And in fact, the, first, the earliest piece in the exhibition that we did in October and the one currently on in Hong Kong is, a, is the first work that he injects a kind of artistic trompe l'oeil um, style from having been an architect. So it's, it's a, there is a almost a Damascene moment where he switches from technical to artistic. I mean, there's a sort of architectonic quality to his work throughout, though, isn't there? There's these, these hard lines, but, but then these soft colours, which therefore have a sort of... Um, they, they abut those hard lines in interesting ways. It becomes a quite painterly, and yet, and yet there's that rigid structure throughout. Yeah, I mean, anyone who knows anything about Richard Lynn thinks of him as being a kind of geometric minimalist working in white. But actually, you know, the first year or so, he was very young, moves to Bayeux in France... Um, and gets married, he's actually working as a figurative painter. And so we've got a painting called uh, The Artist's Bed, um, which is a very naive style, anti-architectural oil painting. It's very strange. Um, but then, of course, he moves into the to, to abstraction and, and minimalism. And, and actually, the, the representative element of those colours are very important. So you have to know a bit about the artist to know this. But when you look at a work from 69, where he moves to Wales, there's a, suddenly he starts using brown 
yellow and green to reflect the scenery around him. Now, that's not necessarily obvious, but it's very important to him. Tell me about his Western influences, because at that time, actually, in Britain, the dominant strains of modernism were much more a legacy of Picasso and Matisse. One thinks about Anthony Caro's sculpture, and we also think about people like Ben Nicholson and those effects. You can detect an element of Nicholson's palette in particular, those kind of white reliefs, but also... Uh, there wasn't an uh, an enormous sort of influence of of minimalism in Britain at that time. Did did Richard look to America at that time? Not specifically. I mean, he was a he was an avid uh, devourer of uh, of influences and new uh, styles and techniques. But as you say, Ben Nicholson, Victor Pasmore, Mondrian, particularly because of the architectural element of the Bauhaus. Um, those were very important for him and his work. But strangely enough, he. As many artists, um, he is known to have had a slightly contrary personality, if I, if I can say that. His family say that, so I feel like I'm on pretty <laughs> safe ground. But, you know, it's a relatively difficult individual. And that, I think, in a way is because, as has been characterized, he was carrying the burden for Chinese or Asian uh, artistic practice in the UK and in the West at that time. So he was representative. And so by pursuing minimalism, particularly when he had started showing with Marlborough from 1966, when they're showing people like Francis Bacon and Lucien Freud and Frank Auerbach, all these kind of artists, you know, he, he, to, to persist in that just monomaniac way on minimalism really kind of tells you about his personality, that he's not uh, synthesizing influences from artists like that. So he, he's very much his own man. And I think the minimalism is as much a kind of reflection of his own personality as outside influences. Now, he achieved quite a lot of success quite early on. If you look at British collections, public collections, you can see that quite a lot of his work entered those regional collections, places in Wolverhampton, for instance, and Liverpool. His work was bought up by these these regional collections. And he had shows at the ICA, for instance. So um, can you give a flavour of the kind of reception of his work in that time? Well, yeah, I mean, he found fame instantly in a way, which is strange because we talk about, I mean, these exhibitions are happening. The London one was the first retrospective outside of Taiwan ever for the artist. And yet um, he had an exhibition at the Institute of Contemporary Art in London in 1958. I mean, this is before he even had a gallery. So Gimple Feast picked him up in 59. And then, of course, he has Documenta in 1964, Documenta 3, where he's the first um, Chinese Taiwanese artist to, to feature there. It was a huge thing. And in fact, actually, we're showing uh, one of the three works that he submitted to that in this exhibition, and it will also be auctioned in May. So, yeah, I mean, he found, he found success very quickly um, to the point where Marlborough, uh, the biggest gallery probably in Europe at the time, arguably so, um, picked him up in 1966 and had a decade-long relationship with him. So his work really found its place very, very quickly. And, and we find that because working with the estate and the family and as they're preparing the catalogue raisonné, we see more and more about who has owned these works for a long time. And many of these pieces went straight into the, the Great and the Good collections. So, um, yeah, he found traction very quickly. Can you say what happened after that? Because obviously he, there's a period where, for instance, he went to work in Wales. Um, what about the level of success that followed from that point? Um, Yeah, he was an artist, again, who was very much his own man. So when he started having a lot of success and started making a lot of money, he suddenly moved to the middle of nowhere in Wales. And uh, and then 
um, falls out with with his gallery with Marlborough um, pretty spectacularly, and so they cut all ties. And then he moved back to Taiwan, and he leaves his family and uh, whatever else. So, um, you know, the 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 nineteen seventy five end date is quite an interesting bookend. And again, I mean, our exhibition is fifty seven to seventy five. Because he moves back to Taiwan and then he releases, a, he, he, he issues a manifesto um, in 1984 entitled Painting is Dead. And so from that point on, he never did another painting. He just did installations and sculptures in, in, in grand scale. And so every time he seems to have success, he kind of turns his back on it and then moves away and, and is consistently doing that. And I think, you know, that speaks to his his animus as an artist. And he's always seeking, seeking perfection and, and pushing the envelope. So and Perhaps that's why he's so successful. Tell us about what happens then when he's back in Taiwan. He does achieve uh, success and, as you say, has has uh, retrospectives in Taiwan when, at the same time, essentially he's being ignored in Europe. Yeah, I mean, the retrospective didn't happen until 2010. You know, right. he's 76, and that's the last year of his life. And that was at the Kaohsiung uh, Museum in Taiwan. And so that was the first major retrospective ever. But the the more... I think the more prestigious thing was that in 1983, the Palace Museum in Taipei, which is the National Museum, uh, they acquired one of his works. Now, he was the first artist and still the only Taiwanese artist to be in that collection. And so he is certainly the cream of the crop in Taiwan. Um, but yeah, his 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 work from from that period of painting is dead onwards, is really just characterised by installations, massive sculptures, using all these materials that he's experimenting with. You know, from 1960 again with architectural training, he's he's doing a lot working with metal, uh, framing the works themselves. You can see that the artist has has overseen every element of the construction. So he's. Um, these are seeds that were sown very early in his career that that only came to be harvested when he moved back to Taiwan. Now, is there a big collector base for Richard Lin's work now? Is it is it growing before your eyes in a way? Yeah, there is, and um, and certainly a lot of the emphasis is in Asia. So this exhibition came about because the artist's children from his his first two marriages are all based in Europe, and most of his career happened in Europe. He was a British citizen as well. And there was a feeling that he wasn't recognised enough now in Europe. And so that, that was the, the first start. But a lot of the, the, the profile is in Asia and mainland China. Um, he's been known for a long time in Taiwan, of course. Um, and so the collector base is growing. Of course, it's growing. But also, if you speak to a major Asian collection, um, and let's say they are trying to do an interesting survey of 20th century um, Asian art and so they will have some of the great figures from the modern period so that's Zhao Ji and Zhu Tichun um, a lot of the contemporary Chinese painters there are no Chinese minimalists because uh, their works haven't survived the China, the, the Cultural Revolution perhaps or um, that wasn't something that was current in Chinese culture or Taiwanese culture or Pan-Asian culture during that period in the second half of the 20th century. Because Lin's body of work is complete and existed by and large in the West, it survived. And so that repatriation of his works is very interesting. And so if someone wants to touch on minimalism in their completest collection, well, then you can't do that without including Richard Lin. And what about Western collections? I mean, 
it seems to me that Richard Lynn is an artist. I mean, he's already in the Tate collection. He's in terms of works on paper. There are actually no paintings, interestingly. Yeah. But but he's in the Tate collection, and the Tate is it has an Asia Pacific. Uh, collection committee and they are expanding the collection and wanting to explore it. Has Are, are museums like the Tate now looking to Richard Lynn as a potential acquisition? I hope so. Uh, I can't speak on their behalf but I, I, this, this exhibition has, has put us in a slightly strange position because um, the work is, is, is of such a high quality. The interest is so broad and the context is global. And so you look at that and yet the infrastructure surrounding it that you'd see with other uh, artists, estates and legacies, uh, it wasn't really there. And so a lot of the conversation has been about getting the family to establish a catalogue raisonné, which is being prepared now, um, and the estate and the archive and a, a, a basis from which to correspond with museums. Because, you know, we're a commercial operation. I mean, this is is a sort of relatively uncommercial project but at the same time it's it's not for us to to sort of manage the estate and 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 everything else um so the plan i would expect would be that once this exhibition part two as it were in hong kong has finished then any uh further iteration of this project would happen in a museum either in asia or in the uk but yeah absolutely if the tate wants to have a full collection of 20th century british art and again, we come to the sort of slightly thorny issue of Tate Britain versus Tate Modern, if there is such a thing as a versus in that, and I don't want to comment. But, you know, that is an interesting uh, conversation. But if they, want to, if they want to be able to feature, you know, the greats from the 20th century, well, then, you know, without a, a, a proper canvas uh, work by Lynn, then I, I think it's, it's not quite complete. It is really interesting, this idea that you could have an artist like him who is collected quite widely. He's represented in, in, in public collections. He's, he's had retrospectives in museums in Asia. And yet you don't have a kind of infrastructure of an estate in the same way around it. You, you, it's it's, it's an, almost an automatic thing. But I guess this is what happens when you have an artist severing ties with a major, major gallery in the 1970s and, and then drifting somewhat and being his own person. I mean, you're absolutely right. And, and I think, you know, that is, that is the legacy of his um his working practice you know severing ties with marlborough has meant that there isn't an archive there um and and also leaving the western uh practice the tradition and moving back to taiwan and and also the 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 heirs to the estate his five children uh, they're all in europe and so in a way it kind of went into cold storage for a long period of time and then suddenly in 2010 with the major retrospective it really woke people up to the fact that there was one of the great masters of the 20th of the second half of the 20th century in their midst and it wasn't being managed in a way that would sort of protect the legacy long term and i think you know the family there's two marriages of course um they used our exhibition uh, during freeze in london as an opportunity to collect a selection of works from the various different members of the family and just say, okay, now is, this is year zero. From now on, there will be a formal um, infrastructure behind Richard Lynn. And so, you know, a direct result of that was the preparation, the announcement of the preparation of the catalogue raisonné, which is being overseen by um, Beatrice Xie, who is the Taiwanese former director of the museum 
And she was the person who curated the retrospective during Lynn's lifetime. So there's a kind of very natural symmetry to the way that it's worked out. Would it, would it be fair to say that Bonhams is taking on a slightly unusual role in terms of Richard Lynn? Because why are you doing an exhibition as opposed to holding an auction? Well, I mean, that is a fair question. And uh, it is unusual. And it is very much part of the DNA of what we're trying to do. You know, we are not trying to take over market share and everything else. We're trying to make sure that everything we do is quality. And so if we're trying to work with Richard Lynn, then this is the most intimate and profound way of us really getting in there, both with the estate, of course, but also with the collectors, because, you know, we want to be able to do business with them. And so the UK uh, exhibition was just works from the from the family. And uh, three of those works then went through to auction. Um, this exhibition is a collaboration with a variety of collectors. So we've taken some of the more unusual pieces from the estate and sent them to Hong Kong and then borrowed them from various different collections. But the centerpiece of the show is um, a, a work entitled 1-3-1964, which is one of the three works uh, that the artist included in documentary in 1964. Um, and so it is, and the other two works are not coming up onto the market ever. Uh, and this is the lost work. You know, people have not seen it. It's been in the same hands uh, ever ever since. Um, and so this piece will actually be included in our auction on May the 27th in Hong Kong. And hopefully that is a kind of a bookend, as a culmination of all of these various different projects. Um, will be very exciting. It's going to be the cover lot and we'll see what happens. Because he was part of both the scene in Taiwan and the scene in Britain. Could we expect to see his works in both a modern British sale and an Asian sale? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, our modern British sale in June has got a really interesting piece by uh, Richard Lin as part of the auction. And um, and that piece actually is on view in Hong Kong as we speak. And so there are, he's definitely someone who fits into both contexts. It's, it's a natural uh, progression, though, that an artist whose market is now overwhelmingly Asian um, would appear in sales that cater to that market. I mean, of course, if you're sitting in, in Taipei or in Beijing, you can bid in a sale in London. But um, to have to allow people the, the chance to, to really have a chance to see the work in the flesh and to bid on a time zone. And I think, you know, the trend tends to be over there. But, you know, we have a long history of uh, very strong modern British departments. So I uh, I don't see the... The, the, the conflict of doing both. Well, it's a fascinating story and we look forward to monitoring its future. Thank you very much for talking to us, Ray. My pleasure. Thank you. The Richard Lin exhibition is at Bonham's Gallery at One Pacific Place, Hong Kong, until the 30th of March. And the documenta painting, 1364, Painting Relief, will be auctioned in Bonham's Modern and Contemporary Art Sale in Hong Kong on the 27th of May. We'll be back and heading to New York after this. Until the end of the 20th century, Dora Maar was best remembered as the muse of Pablo Picasso, who became a recluse when the painter ended their tempestuous nine-year affair. But an exhibition in Paris in 1999 reintroduced her to the world as a major surrealist painter and photographer. Villa Avange, a photo montage from 1936, the year she met Picasso and abandoned photography as a career, appears in Bonham's photograph sale in New York in April. As Bonham's director of photographs, Laura Patterson, points out, quote, Dora Maar's association with Picasso drowned out her voice as an artist in her own right, but this wonderfully inventive montage demonstrates her enormous contribution to the history of surrealist photography. 
Villa Avondre will be included in the forthcoming retrospective of Mars' work to be shown in Paris, London and Los Angeles over the next two years. To find out more about Villa Avondre, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, the Metropolitan Museum of Arts exhibition, The World Between Empires, examines a period from the 1st century BCE through to the 3rd century AD, when the Middle East was the meeting point between two powerful empires, the Parthian and the Roman. It takes a close look at art and architecture in cities along the trade routes that crisscross the region. Yet there's an unavoidable cloud over the exhibition. Many of these places have suffered great destruction and looting in recent years. Our senior editor in New York, Nancy Kenny, went to the Met to meet Michael Seymour and Blair Folks Charles, the curators of the exhibition. First, tell me about yourselves. My field of research is the art and religions of the Roman Empire. Specifically, I'm working on a book on the cults of the gods of Syria and Phoenicia that spread to Rome and across the Roman world. And so my interests bridge the disciplines of art history, of archaeology, of classics, of religious studies and topography. And so in working on the world between empires, it's been an incredible opportunity to bring my research to a wider public and to work on an exhibition that draws on it and also enhances it. So, for example, the art of Palmyra and of Heliopolis Baalbek is of particular importance to my larger questions of research, and in this case, to look at them within the context of a larger exhibition has been a fascinating opportunity. I specialize in ancient uh, Mesopotamia, ancient Iraq, and especially uh, the city of Babylon, and I work on some of its ancient art history, but also on the history of archaeology at Babylon and on all the ways it's been sort of received and reimagined in culture down the centuries, which is a wonderfully sort of rich and um, and a fun topic. In the period we're covering in the world between empires, it's a fascinating moment at Babylon because you're looking at the last phases at the end of some of these great temples that have been functioning, you know, rebuilt and, and reused continuously, you know, over the the better part of 2000 years. And maybe the great illustration of that is that at the moment our exhibition begins in the first century BC, there are still scribal schools and people working in the cuneiform script and copying Sumerian and Akkadian texts in the temples um, at Babylon. By the end of our period in the 3rd century, that has all come to an end. The last dated cuneiform texts we have come from the 1st century AD, and probably by the 3rd century um, there was was no one left to to read or interpret those texts. So can you tell me, how did the exhibition come about? Well, there have been a series of exhibitions in our department that have covered different time periods and stories in the ancient Middle East, the third and second and early first millennia BC. So in some ways, this is, was an opportunity to look at uh, the region in a later period. And we realized there was a really powerful story to tell about art and local identity during the age of the Roman and Parthian empires. In some ways, finding 
this exhibition and finding the narrative of the show was very much about discovering the right framing. This is one of those cases where the cultural, artistic, religious story we wanted to tell didn't line up with the the big ancient political boundaries of the day. And so for us, in a lot of ways, it was an exploration working towards finding the right lens for this story. Well, we learn at the outset of the show that three major international trade routes defined the commercial life of the Middle East during the Roman and Parthian period. Can you tell us a little bit about them? The Middle East in this period is enormously um, important to the global economy, and it is the meeting point of a lot of routes. We try to break that down into three really big networks. One is the route from southwestern Arabia up um, across the Arabian Peninsula to the Mediterranean, which is traditionally known as the the incense routes. And that's the road travelled by frankincense and myrrh that are gathered in, in southern Arabia, but also by a lot of commodities that are coming from the next of these big networks, the Indian Ocean and Indian Ocean trade, which really opens up in this period and we see in the exhibition um, precious stones from India that just hint at some of um, some of the, the big maritime trade routes that, that were operating in this period. That's something that may have been somewhat underestimated and there are important excavations going on now at um, what were probably key ports of the period. And the third network is the um, system of land routes running from the Middle East across the Zagros Mountains, across Iran, into Central Asia, and on into East Asia, which we know as the Silk Roads. Well, the trade routes led to the birth of these so-called caravan cities, right, with vital art and architecture. Do many of them still exist as cities today or as archaeological sites? In some ways, we're hesitant about the caravan cities framing because there are cities that, like Palmyra, that existed really primarily for those commercial purposes and for facilitating international trade. But of course, what's going on overall is a lot more diverse and you have cities that are sanctuaries, cities that are uh, sort of um, military or so we're trying to, to show that variety, but absolutely the caravan trade and the global economy are, are tying them together. So some places like Petra are very famous archaeological sites and World Heritage sites today, even major tourist sites. So the picture is very different from place to place, both in terms of of, of modern cities and of the state of preservation of sites. Uh, some of the objects in the show must have fascinating backstories. Can you tell me about one of your favorite antiquities in the exhibition? One of the really incredible loans from Lebanon, from the National Museum of Beirut in the exhibition, is a small sculpture a few inches high of an Aphrodite, in the pose of Aphrodite rising from the sea. And in some ways... She's a very classical form, 
but she also embodies this ancient, ancient Middle Eastern tradition of adorning divine statues. And she was found in salvage excavations at the site of Baalbek in the Bekaa Valley in the 1960s, where, still wearing her gold earrings and a gold necklace set with green stones. And we were really fortunate that Beirut arranged for the sculpture to come a little early so that she could go for analysis in our Department of Scientific Research. And they were able to establish that the the green stones of her necklace are in fact emeralds. So that was, it's a really wonderful discovery. But also, I think an object like that is is very moving. The survival of, of these tiny, tiny pieces of jewellery on this statuette really connect you to ancient people and a sort of living ancient religious world. Another object is the portrait of Bata from Palmyra, which is a funerary portrait of a young woman. And it's exceptional because a lot of pigment survives. So we see her eyes are painted and her resplendent jewellery. It's very colorful and gives us an incredible sense of her because the inscription indicates her grandfather commissioned it during her lifetime. And so we have a real connection with an actual Palmyrene woman in the late second or third century, both in how she chose to be depicted, her jewelry, and also this fact that it may be a real likeness of her rather than a more generic image. And so for me, that's a particularly powerful and significant object. Your exhibition comes at a critical time for the cultural heritage of many places in the Middle East. You know, you have ISIS, which has destroyed buildings and monuments in Syria and northern Iraq. You have the civil wars in Syria and Yemen, which have been devastating to that country's cultural riches. And then you have the succession of conflicts that followed the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. How involved have you and your colleagues been in tracking the destruction? How do you find out about it? We find out um, what's happening in in some ways piecemeal. Um, it sounds very basic, but there are uh, email lists, listservs that people feed information into as they get it. And so we sort of, things things pop up in your in your inbox every day as people report individual pieces of news to the field. There are other more systematic monitoring projects going on. For example, um, ASOR, the American Schools of Oriental Research, ran a long-term project producing weekly and monthly reports on um, new information on damage to sites across Syria. And occasionally, you know, there's recently been... Um, an extensive report on on damage in different parts of Yemen. So sometimes there are systematic reports, but we also rely on colleagues individually um, reporting news back to the field. In terms of of the Met's activity, the museum's been involved with Columbia University and with ACOR, the American Center for Oriental Research in Jordan, in a project that focuses on trying to provide training and and resources for heritage professionals, museum professionals from primarily Iraq and where where possible Syria. And that project has tried to be to operate in a responsive mode to listen to the participants' needs and shape its program 
in accordance with that. Um, but that has so far meant a focus on documentation. Documentation photography of museum collections is incredibly important work. That's an area where a museum like the Met can um, participate in a in a constructive way in an area where it has that has relevant expertise to to offer. Are any of these objects making their way to museums in the West? Or is there a reluctance to acquire that sort of thing? I mean, I would say that the results of this kind of, of these events are going to take some time to play out fully when objects do surface on the market, so to speak. And certainly there are ongoing attempts by law enforcement officials across the world to combat smuggling of looted objects. And so raising awareness of of this chain of looting to smuggling to acquiring is incredibly important. And so anything that can be done to bring awareness to this current and future problem is imperative. In Lebanon, we seem to have an example of a country that went through a long civil war and recovered and has made some strides since the the war ended in 1990 there. Do you see any hopeful signs archaeologically or otherwise? I think that we have to have hope for the future. And it's true that at the Beirut National Museum, there is a very inspiring story of post-war reconstruction that one can can walk through very much encourage anyone to to visit the national museum and watch the video they have there that that uh, talks about the process of reconstruction following the civil war it took many years and it took heroic efforts from museum professionals and archaeologists both during and after the war but it's true that that some of the um the efforts that have have taken place in in post-war Lebanon have um, been hugely, hugely constructive. And I think that you also, during the war in, in Syria and during the conflicts in Iraq, have seen people make enormous efforts, sometimes at great personal risk, to protect collections and museums and sites and in Iraq, as as today, the State Board of Antiquities and Heritage and their staff work to, to restore and improve museums across the country and site protection across the country. I think that there, too, you can see a lot of incredible work being done and reasons for, reasons for hope for the future. So, fundamentally... For heritage to be protected, for museums and archaeology to thrive, um, for the historical fabric of cities to be well cared for. Our field needs exactly the same thing that everyone else needs, which is peace and stability and um, for people to be safe and secure and and cared for. Really, the well-being of heritage is in some ways a byproduct of the well-being of people. And I'd just like to add that through the exhibition, The World Between Empires, 
we hope very much to engage visitors with ancient art to make it approachable and to give them a sense of the joy that we feel in 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 researching it and studying it and in making their stories in a sense come alive that sometimes works of art from the ancient world can be seen as so complicated and mysterious that the human connection to them isn't always easy to see. And what we're trying to do is very much to show through our wider theme of art and identity how it is possible to understand the cultural, the religious, the personal identities as expressed through art and to fundamentally understand that ancient people and ancient works of art aren't as different from us as they may seem initially. Well, thank you, Blair and Michael. Thank you. Thank you. The World Between Empires, Art and Identity in the Ancient Middle East is on view at the Metropolitan Museum of Art on Fifth Avenue until the 23rd of June. And that's it for this week. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please give us a rating or review on iTunes as it helps others to find us. You can follow us and tell us what you think on Twitter at Tan Audio. And you can find the art newspaper on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, of course. If you'd like to read more from the art newspaper, please subscribe to our free daily newsletter. It contains a roundup of the stories published on our website, previews of exhibition openings and live reports from fairs like Art Basel Hong Kong and the forthcoming Venice Biennale. You can subscribe by visiting theartnewspaper.com and clicking on the newsletter link at the top right of the page. The producers of the Art Newspaper podcast are Julia Michalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David is also the editor. Thanks to Gareth and Mark, to Rafe and to Nancy, Michael and Blair, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week when, among other things, we'll be talking about museums and funding from the Sackler family. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com.